2: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Bianca Williams and Dr. Frank A. Tewitt, two of the three co-editors of Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions, Power, Diversity, and the Emancipatory Struggle in Higher Education, published by our friends at SUNY Press. On today's episode, we discuss the origin story of Plantation Politics and campus rebellions, the increase of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts on campuses around the country in the wake of Derek Chauvin's murder of George Floyd, language issues when writing about the history of enslaved people, and what goes on to each professor's plantation politics and campus rebellions musical playlists. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to the podcast, Professors Williams and it I'm um, super happy to have you on New Books in African-American Studies today and um, su- super glad for our conversation. You know, I've been reading your book and it's really one where just straight from the name, Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions, a conversation started. So we're we going to get it cracking because time is of the essence. So uh, to begin our conversation today, can you tell the listening audience about what inspired Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions? And uh, we'll start with uh, Professor Tewitt, because I think I I heard you. You got something for the people.
0: I appreciate that. And thank you for having us here. So we started thinking about plantation politics in 2015 when everything was happening at the University of Missouri. Uh, We started taking a look at uh, student uh, demands from across the country at a variety of different institutions and started seeing some patterns and responses to those. Uh, Demands, uh, and so that really got us thinking about the ways in which uh, the university responses were connected to what we we uh, you know affectionately referred to as plantation past. Uh, I think for us, uh, at least for me, I'll say for me, a, a critical moment was actually a year later when we were in uh, Ohio at the Association for the Study of Higher Education. Uh, conference getting ready to present on plantation politics and uh, as we know what happened uh, the election of, of the previous president occurred and that uh, just threw us for a loop uh, went to sleep not expecting that to happen and the you know the meaning of the work we were doing on that time at that time took on a, a greater significance uh, as we were trying to reconcile the tensions between uh, you know how can, a, a nation that was really at least, you know, saying they were committed to diverse, equity and inclusion, uh, elect a president who was, you know, completely against everything that the, that stood for. And so the the work itself took on a, a, a real deeper meaning and and forced us to take a look at the work we were doing uh, in support of, academy, of the academy in particular, And and I'll say for me, you know, uh, given the role I was in as a a chief diversity officer, uh, it hit me on a personal level, sort of having to reconcile. Here I am doing uh, this labor with the specific goal of helping institutions become more inclusive. And every message around me, both within and outside of the institution, was suggesting that uh, that was not being valued or or supported. So... uh, you know, it became a way for us to make meaning of, of how we were being exploited from a labor perspective, uh, the ways in which uh, the espoused values were really just uh, superficial commitments to, to diversity, uh, nothing that was really meant to substantially transform or change uh, the academy, but just to, you know, continue to have us come in to these institutions in ways that allowed us to be present, but not acknowledged, allowed us to, um, you know, them to exploit our labor, but not to be rewarded for it, and to um, really uh, continue to enact violence. I think that was one of the things the framework allowed us to bring to the forefront was the ways in which our experiences were, were violent experiences in a place that we were Uh, invited in to to be a part of. So uh, I'll stop there and see if Dr. Williams has anything to add to that, but that was the genesis for me.
3: I don't have anything to add right now, but I'll let Adam go ahead.
2: (laughs) No, that's real. That's real. Um, And and I think, you know, going back, it's always interesting thinking about um, origin stories or, you know, Come from a church background, you know. We were talking about this before—a uh, Genesis uh, story of of a book or or, or a project. Um, so I'm also interested to know, and and this is one that um, Dr. Williams. I'll let you start with. So plantation politics, I'm sure, will cause at least a few listeners and future readers. Because you know, we, we got to give folks, a, you know, shout out for for SUNY Press as well for the book. Um, so so I'm really interested to know. Um, and, and so, this would be for you, uh, Dr. Williams. Can you describe to everyone what you actually mean by plantation politics, just so that people get, you know, whatever sticker shock or so that they might have, that you can just let them know uh, what informed your your framework and, and the analysis that each writer um, in the in the um, in the volume are speaking about.
3: Yeah, I can definitely understand the sticker shock, and I, I will admit that over the years—I mean, we've been working on this since 2015, 2014. Um, I, over the years, I've had a a, a tough relationship. <laughs> With the plantation analogy or metaphor, um, plantation politics, because I know for my, particularly my peer historians, um, this is a tough comparison, right? And so I want to be clear that we're not at all arguing that we are our ancestors, right? That the same kind of um, type of violence and psychological warfare that our ancestors experienced as enslaved peoples is what we are experiencing now in higher ed. That would be a ridiculous um, analysis to make. Um, But we are saying that the kind of systems, um, uh, how the university functions, um, the kind of Um, extraction of Black labor and value that were placed on Black people's bodies and their humanity that oftentimes uh, allowed these institutions to exist, Um, the various forms of oppressions that we have been living through for generations, those things still are connected um, and are the motor for how higher ed operates. And so while some of the circumstances have changed while Black people in higher ed now have access to choices that our ancestors didn't, those choices are still impacted by these previous histories, right? Um, I think Dean Squire, our co-editor, does a really good job in his chapter, I think it's chapter one, talking about the ways that while we may understand that we are not um, enslaved peoples anymore, um, that the institutions and administrations that operate in higher ed are looking at Black people's bodies, humanity, and labor in similar ways, right? And so um, why we connected plantation politics to campus rebellions is because in those moments of rebellions, when we have these over 180 protests on campuses during the Movement for Black Lives, you see institutions showing their cards, right? How do we control these students and the faculty and staff, Um who are out of order and are not operating in the way they should? How do we extract labor from the black faculty and staff to keep the students in line? Um, They are using previous lenses of how to look at black people um, to make current day and even future um, actions and activities. So, you know, I I understand the kind of hesitation (laughs) around plantation politics, but we really wanted to make clear from the get-go that there are connections from this previous moment to this current contemporary moment, and that if we're going to find a way out of how we're experiencing um, anti-Blackness and how white supremacy operates in higher ed, which we are clear is one of the motors of a higher ed, for the future, we have to be clear about this connection. Um, And I think we were confirmed um, by, you know, Frank was just talking about the conference. I can't remember which one that was, but at NCOR and AERA and ASH, all the conferences that we presented at, we would have people coming to us at the end emotional, like in tears, um, because for them, plantation politics, that phrase, named something that they had been experiencing, but hadn't been able to name before in some ways.
2: And actually, um, I I would actually love, um, and you know, this is why I'm glad in in our um, pre-portion, I was like, hey, you know, there might be some organic questions. So Here's one. Um, I'm actually interested to know, and, and Professor Tui, I, I'll let you take the stab on this one. Going back to those moments where you're first presenting on the framework, you, you, you spoke about, Dr. Williams, some of the, you know, the the affect that, you know, that initial, you know, uh, those, those initial moments of, of people um, being in your presentation. So so I'm also interested to know because the whole reason why the the second question was the way it was was inherent challenges. So I'm also interested to know about what were some of those initial challenges to the framework and because I actually think that with something like this, it would actually be quite beneficial for the audience to know, uh, because at some point we all have different, have people challenging our work in certain ways, especially as Black faculty um, and also as graduate students. So um, Professor Tewitt, if, if you don't mind, Dr. Tewitt, if you don't mind uh, taking that on, um, I, I'm sure that listeners would love to know.
0: Yeah, uh, a couple of things come to mind. We touched on the one, the comparison and the ways in which people struggle with that. I think uh, the second was really around um, the resistance that folks had to us calling higher ed institutions plantations. So uh, that generated some um, challenges. And, you know, uh, we, the three of us, uh, myself, Dr. Williams and Dr. Squire, were in a conversation recently and, and the ways in which this Landed in particular on Dr. Scribe was was really um, unfortunate in a lot of ways, but um, you know, uh, not surprising on the other hand, in terms of the kinds of resistance that uh, folks encounter when they're trying to expose uh, inequities within higher ed institutions. And so, uh, you know, I won't get into the details of that, but it, it, there's definitely um, some. Some um, targeting that happened, uh, some um, you know, impunitive uh, uh, responses uh, in in ways to uh, just putting the scholarship forward. So that that was that was hard to see and, and, and to experience um, uh, for all of us in different ways. But I, I think for Dr. Squire in particular, uh, the ways. Uh, you know, not having the same protections we have around tenure and, and things like that. So that was that was that was tough. I think, um, you know, it, it was hard for some folks to uh, take that leap with us, even though we were able to uh, really make concrete connections. Right. And so how do you ignore these things that are, that are, are are tangible connections between our current situation in the past, and try to explain it away, uh, it, it was something that I think was, was another form of, of resistance. Folks were just not willing to go there with us because of the implications that had for their understanding of their own positionality within the very institutions that, 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 that we work for. Uh, so, uh, you know, those are some of the challenges uh, the only other thing I would think about is uh we and this is a more of an internal challenge, um, you know, had to find some common language uh throughout uh and 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 to uh leverage different sort of disciplinary um uh contexts and, and that actually proved to be helpful, but it was a challenge uh to get uh common language uh uh, throughout, throughout, not just for the three of us, but for the contributors of the book, right? Uh, so uh, that's another one that was uh, an interesting one. I hadn't thought about that until just now, uh, but uh, as I reflect back on our, our conversations, that was that was real, and and took many uh, iterations uh, uh, for some of us more than others. I'll say. <laughs>
2: So that that the
3: i'm laughing cuz he's talking about me um and i want to name this uh this is this seems like an aside but i want to name this because it's not often named we oftentimes i if you know any of my work, you know I am adamant about bringing my whole self to my work and not separating things out. And so if you hear me out of breath, it's because I am pregnant and this baby is sitting on my lungs. And I want to name that because it contributes to, like, the different forms of of labor and af- affect that shows up. Um, and since I'm on the call with two men, I to name that, um, that's happening. So if I'm out of breath, that's what's happening right now. Um, Frank, yes, I went, I, I was adamant that we kind of find a way to talk about our different relationships to some of these terms. And it was really difficult disciplinarily because this, what, one of the gifts of this book is that, um, there's so many different interdisciplinary multidisciplinary and disciplinary lenses present but it was tough to when you're talking about something like the plantation or when you're talking about something like rebellion to really be clear and settler colonialism to be clear about what we mean by all these different terms and again even amongst the three of us like navigating our different relationships to higher ed right so gender race sexuality like all of these things um trying to navigate how to have a common language. And again, I won't go into details around Deanne, but I think the assumption Deanne as the only non-Black editor, right, the assumption was that maybe there would be a way that Deanne would get through the risk of this differently than us. And I want to point to the ways that because Deanne was not tenured and because he was navigating the job market at the time, um, Even still, right, because of the way that labor is extracted, because of the value that we place on particular type of scholars and researchers in higher ed, he experienced a different form of pushback um, than we did, right? And so I wanted to name that kind of multiplicity of intersections.
0: And And of course, of course, of course, one other challenge. it, and, and this is on a personal level with our own engagement with the content, right? And so I think, as, as Dr. Williams just mentioned, we, we all sort of reacted differently to it. But for, for me in particular, the, the exposing and, and uh, unmasking of ways in which I was complicit in the things we were naming was hard
2: yeah hey hey you know i to both of y'all uh dr dr williams on on the on the gendered labor aspect of it where you literally are naming that fact that you have a baby and i actually never actually thought about it that way in terms of when you're sitting in a chair talking obviously at any point but just as you're sitting down i actually never thought about that uh so Wow, that that in and of itself. So so once again, thank you so much for, for coming on um even more. Um and then also for you, Dr. To it, about in being seeing yourself maybe in um maybe not in maybe some of the things that you necessarily do, but in your actual role. Um, I that that I think that is also important for the listeners to know because of the fact that um like for myself, I work um you know, for the um, African-American Intellectual History Society on the board, along with um, the Association of uh, Black Women's Historians. And for ABWH, I do the job uh, newsletter every week. And so my job is in part to look at jobs in in all forms Um, because, you know, we have people that could, you know, serve in a role like you in universities and colleges around the country um, and even abroad. And I think it's important because, We oftentimes don't know what DEI officers actually do outside of maybe a job description. But as we know, job description and actual job, like the role that you ultimately serve, are not always one and the same. Um, So I actually really appreciate you bringing that to the fore um, and also bringing up the area where uh, uh, Professor Esquire is also. you know, he was on the job market. And that is its own form, although not a, a black person. That is a form of uh, precarity in and of itself, um, especially for a book like this and the chapter uh, that that uh, he ultimately uh, contributed. And with that, I'm also very interested to know, since we're staying on titles here for a second, um, you know, and not title as in like, you know, where Beyonce just dropped, you know, the you know new album, you know, Who's listening? You can tell the 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 timestamp uh, for those listening, th- like three or four years in a you know away. Uh, but once again, staying with the title theme for a moment, um, why do you actually describe um, and, and call the particular events on campus rebellions versus another term like riots or even uprisings, for example? What risks, to going back to risk again, um, did the editorial team take in dubbing student actions rebellions?
3: So um, Frank was talking about how when we started this work, he was really thinking it through his own experience as a chief diversity officer, and also as wa- as a person who was watching Underground at the time, right? And really trying to navigate
2: My um, what it
3: meant to be a chief diversity officer who felt connections to what is the person's name, Frank? Cato. Yes, Cato, Cato, right, right. Um, and so navigating that, I at the time that we were doing this project was one of the co-founders and former co-leads of the Denver chapter of Black Lives Matter, um, and was doing organizing in Denver um, with families of folks who you know were victims of police violence. Um, while I was teaching in Boulder, um, Colorado, in the ethnic studies and as a, a Black studies professor, and so it was really important to me that we named not only the plantation politics, like the focus, I think sometimes we get so stuck and lost and focused on the white supremacy and anti-Blackness and how it operates, rightfully so, that we forget that there's a long legacy of pushback and resistance and uprisings and rebellions that Black people have been doing since the beginning of time, um, particularly in higher ed spaces when we were present and when we weren't present. And so I really felt like, those pointing to the relationship and the connection between plantation politics and campus rebellions was important because campus rebellions is oftentimes the moments where the plantation politics there's a spotlight put on them that they um, kind of come out of the darkness if you're not aware of where they are. Um, rebellions was important to use because we wanted to talk about the ways that the movement for Black Lives and the the protests that were happening on campuses during that moment were deeply connected to previous periods of uprisings and riots or whatever you want to use the term, that there were connections across time and space. Not only, um, you know, you're looking at the students who are at Mizzou and a lot of those students were learning strategies or using strategies because they were participating in Ferguson uprisings, right? And so it wasn't to kind of push back against this idea that the university is this, this boundaried space that is not connected to the local the communities that surround it or even transnationally thinking about what was happening in south africa um what fees must fall like all of these different protests that were happening were connected um and so we wanted to make sure that people used a wide lens to talk about um these student university-based protests um that they weren't just looking at them as what was happening at Mizzou or what was happening at Harvard separately. Um, And then the last thing is, again, universities are looking at these protests, these rebellions, these acts of resistance as moments where they are losing control, right? And so rebellion is a moment where there's spontaneous acts of resistance happening. There's also very well deeply planned acts of resistance that are happening and institutions and administrations both people and systems are trying to figure out how to put these black people back in their place. Right. And I think rebellion doesn't allow you to ignore that process.
2: And that's very important because, you know, I'm sure that um, there's always a question about language, right? I know that even in the book um, you use folks and you say, I think it spells F O L X as opposed to K. And so, you know, Understanding language and uh, the choices that people make, and also the context, and not to just think as uh, an unthinking decision. Um, so, 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 thank you for that. Um, and also, moving forward, I'm also interested to know about audience. So, what audience did you write slash edit "Plantation Politics" and "Campus Rebellion"? Campus rebellions for Dr. Tewes.
0: Sure, I'll I'll take this one. So you know that was a also an evolving uh, situation. Uh, as we presented to different folks, it became a lot clearer for us, in many ways, that this book uh, provided uh, a connection, a way of understanding experiences for for particularly racially minoritized folks in, in pr- predominantly white institutions, but not exclusively uh, in, 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 in these traditionally white institutions. Uh, so, so I would say one, that is a primary audience. Uh, two, we definitely wanted to provide uh, folks who were engaging in this work from uh, a scholar practitioner perspective to, to have some uh, new ways of framing uh, DEI work in, in particular, uh, to push the boundaries of, of what had become DEI work in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, you know, we go on to, to say, really, uh, this work is is for anyone who's who's interested in dismantling uh, systems and structures within the academy that contribute or reinforce anti-Blackness or white supremacy. Um but I think uh, as, as we began to talk more and more with folks, uh, there seemed to be two groups of folks, those who were on the receiving end of, of plantation politics and, and, and those who were uh, uh, trying to do something about it.
2: Dr. Williams?
3: Um, I think I'll just add that uh, for me, as someone who was very much like, and Frank had this experience too, was very much like a, a student activists, if you want to use that word, or like very active, probably spent more time organizing than being in class when we were an undergrad. Um, <laughs> it was important to me that, this, that students who are participating in various forms of rebellion or resistance had a quick and easy like thing to grab to have access to some of the, again, wider context that is affecting what's happening on their specific university campus, right? And so if you read the book, you have people identifying like the kind of motor of white supremacy and how it works in higher ed. And I'm hoping that it gives those students tools for identifying like, this is what's happening to us. This is who is perpetuating and allowing this machine to work. And this may be a potential place for change or transformation, um, you know, in the future. So we hope that the book allows people to kind of you know, sometimes anti-blackness, when we talk about anti-blackness or white supremacy, it feels like this massive thing that is everywhere and all over the place. And it's hard to kind of attack. Um, so we hope the book gives people specific places to kind of push their energy towards.
2: And, and I appreciate that. And, you know, and in one of my later questions down down the line and you know you y'all got something for for damn near all the areas including HBCUs which I'm very interested to hear to hear about that one uh I was like oh for real? All right then you know let, let me let me let, let me let me be open to this conversation. <laughs> because, hey you know HBCU people, you know what I'm saying we we you know you we, know we rally around each other. You know so so but but I appreciated uh the the chapter all the chapters but especially that one. Um, now, another part that I'm interested to know, um, and this is something I'm sure that both of you have seen, um, and and experienced in different ways on your individual campuses, um, but unfortunately, to me anyway, um, diversity and anti-racism have become more household names in the wake of Derek Chauvin's murder of George Floyd. Um, in light of this phenomenon, I'm very interested to know, Going towards audience again, in the hands of DEI and folks leading supposedly anti-racist workshops uh, rooted in the university, um, what do you think, what would you want for them to take out of this book as well? Um, Because I think that, I'll just say that I have a friend who works at Under Armour, and they had some of these uh, well-known people. And let's just say the amount that they got paid it, are, are people's salaries for a year. Like, not nine months salary, 12 months. Like, And I'm like, brother, for real? And so, yeah, I, I'll just leave it at that. So, uh, Dr. it, you want to take this one on first, brother? Uh, I'll start
0: with it. Uh, so... Yeah, I I, I think um, one of the things that we were conscious of was uh, trying to move folks away from what uh, Sarah Ahmed refers to as the happy talk of, of of diversity, and and I think we're starting to see some of that with 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 anti-racism work, uh, and and so uh, our way of thinking about this through the book was to shift it away from you know, talking about the ways in which people are anti-racist and and shifting the lens to institutional systems and structures and logics and and, and narratives and discourses which exist that uh, support uh, white supremacy or facilitate anti-Blackness. And so uh, the focus on system structures and roles, uh, the way in which uh, curriculum and pedagogy you know, the, the, the chief diversity officer role, I mean, all of these different systems and structures that are in place that uh, reinforce whiteness was what we wanted to tackle. And so uh, anti-racism work that, that stays in that first category of focusing on what people do or don't do, I'm not saying that's not important, but uh, we can do that forever and institutions will still continue to be the way they are. If we don't tackle the systems and structures, uh, we, we have very little chance of, 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 of transforming these institutions. And, and so hopefully that came through in the book.
2: Most definitely. And, and I'm interested as well, uh, Dr. Williams, with your role as a, as a professor, what you would also want and, and think uh, would be a good take or would be good takeaways uh, for folks who are in these particular roles as well.
3: Yeah. I mean, as someone, I mean, Frank and I have co-facilitated these workshops at numerous places. Um, and I, I have spoken before about how for me, ooh, it's interesting to talk about this week. Um, for me, January 6th was a turning point um, where I kind of watched the audacity of white supremacy in real time and and white privilege, watching folks just feel entitled to space and violent acts and all these things that I just knew if me and any of my folks who organized with BLM had even attempted 0.1% of that, we would probably be either in prison or dead. Um, and so the audacity of white supremacy on that day really stopped me in my, even though I knew it was a thing, like, like watching it in real time, stopped me in my tracks and really did change how I think about my own um, equity work. I don't know that I think about my work as diversity or inclusion work, but equity work and resistance work. And so for me, it's been a shift in um, really putting more of my focus and attention and energy in Black-centered spaces and trying to figure out how to better mentor particularly my black students to navigate the space that is higher the space that we're talking about in that book and describing like really trying to come up with strategies to help them better navigate this space um and less about i mean i have been accused of being a white people whisperer in the past like some people just have gifts like people have i think people who do dei work if they do it well Um, Some people have different gifts that they bring to the table. And that individual personal work that Frank is talking about, oftentimes affective work, takes a lot of emotional labor to do. And it's it's a skill. It's a practice. It's something that people, particularly folks who are not white, doing it it takes a lot of energy out of you. And I I will say, I used to be really good at it, but something about January 6th turned it for me. And maybe it was also the organizing and the movement for Black Lives. Like, I just don't have the energy for that anymore. I don't have the desire in the same way to do it. Not that I don't think it's useful work, but like Frank said, I'm more trying to focus now on what is the structural, long-term change that can happen. And for me, just based on my experiences over the past seven to eight years. It is on focusing on how to allow, enable Black people to live in our full humanity amongst ourselves, like in our space, like how can we make room for um, our gifts, for supporting one another, for really being, doing collective work in higher ed. Um, And I don't think I was able to focus on that work as much before because I was doing this kind of DEI work that took me away from it. So...
2: And and I and I, I really appreciate you bringing this up as a skill because it you know just because you are black doesn't automatically provide you skills to it's almost like you know uh in uh in grade school when you know it's Martin Luther King time it's you know whatever black figure that they're talking about Rosa Parks and all the all the folks in the class are you know they look at your black self and they're like well, you should be able to teach. I'm like, yo, I'm not the Negro whisperer. Like, I don't know all this. Like, I don't have some, like, you know, uh, automatic, you know, from birth I know about Nat Turner. Like, I I got to learn too. Like, what the hell? You know what I'm saying? Um, which is its own form of labor right there because we're not all knowing beings. Um, you know what I'm saying? So So, I think, like, to your point about letting black people live in their full humanity honestly in in part also being able to be ignorant of stuff too but with the ability and to have the um the care of folks around you that hey you might want to know this but you know not in a way that makes people just feel bad because we're all we all come to things at different moments um as well
3: can I explain- and one, no, of course, of course. Of course, of course. Um, so one thing that I saw in organizing spaces over the past eight years, and, and now I'm seeing it in higher ed more often, is that's interesting. Is that in this moment where people, particularly white folks, are trying to figure out like how to deal with white guilt and how to um, maybe do the work of equity and inclusion, or at least appear to do the work of equity equity and inclusion. There is this kind of like, how do we find the black person to bring in? that will teach us how to do this well. And what I would always say in organizing spaces was like, you can't just find any black person. Like, you, know, you gotta find people who have the training, the experience, the understanding. And I think what we're trying to do in this book is give you language and tools so that, like, anyone can really figure out, like, how is power operating in this space and who are the best people to change how oppression is operating in this space. And I think sometimes we get stuck. I think identity politics are super important. And I think sometimes we get stuck in the identities without understanding the power and oppression part of it. So yes, there's a ton of people that I know who are Black folks who are making a ton of money in this moment. And if I'm reading their books and I'm looking at their work, I wouldn't say they were the best people to teach you how to be anti-racist or to teach you about anti-Blackness. You, you know, So I think understanding the structural and systemic and long-term implications is really important. And we have, all of us have a lot of learning to do, but we can't just get stuck in in the old school way of thinking about identity politics and multiculturalism and these things that led us to this moment where we're still struggling, right?
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And also, it reminds me as well of some trends that I've spoken at length um, in recent episodes about um, most recently with uh, Dr. Josh Myers' book on uh, Cedric Robinson, where we had a discussion about hiring practices in a field like Black Studies, which uh, Dr. Williams, you know quite well, where, and this also comes back to the prior question about who, jobs that come in the wake of police violence. And also, what does it mean that for a, a its own separate field of Black Studies, Africana Studies, whatever iteration you want to use, how often do we see jobs where it's Black Studies and, Black Studies and, Africana Studies and, and that almost being a way that, as a historian, look, I have mad love for, for Black Studies people, and, and I'm reading more and more work, but I also have to be able to cut the line and say, look, that is not my training. I can learn. There is a tradition of folks who have come through how I've come and still been a part of the Black Studies discussion. But at the end of the day, what happens when specifically the jobs that have come in the wake, and in the initiatives, and the money that suddenly pop up, when black studies departments in the different iterations are often now losing funding in part because people's lines are elsewhere oftentimes. Um, and so, so has that also been a trend that, that y'all have seen as well um, in, the, in these last couple of years? Dr. Stewart?
0: Yeah, um, definitely the number of uh, diversity type roles have just exploded. and uh, and not just in higher ed. Uh, A lot of my uh, colleagues in the corporate sector uh, found themselves in DEI type roles because they were Black, uh, not because they had a particular uh, expertise in that area. Um, And so, uh, you know, that's been a a big thing. I, I also think you know, I've been referring to these folks as uh, temporarily woke white folks who have emerged out of out of the recent times and 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 had questions about their ability to sustain uh, their interest in the movement. Uh, and that is waning and folks are going back to sleep. And uh, so those two sort of um, things happening at the same time an increase in the number of folks who have been put into these roles. Uh the engagement on the part of white folks. Uh, when I got to my institution, my current institution, there was a line waiting for me already of folks who wanted to meet and 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 engage and figure out how they could be supportive. Um that was very different from my previous experience where we had to chase people down to get them engaged. Um and so uh, you know, some of those folks are still around, but a lot of those folks have, you know, gone to new priorities and And so it'll be interesting to see what, what remains out of these recent uh, increased levels of engagement.
3: So in the book, um, Armand Towns does a great job at talking about um, the ways that Western knowledge and the creation of disciplines are deeply entangled with anti-Blackness and white supremacy. Um, And I think, you know, that chapter, I wrote. I just wrote a piece on um, Black feminist citational praxis and disciplinary belonging, and the ways that Black women, in particular, but Black feminists more broadly, um, who are anthropologists, who do interdisciplinary work, who are trained in Black studies, oftentimes are not belonging in, in either discipline. Right? That like we're too anthropological and too ethnographic for Black studies, um, but then like too. <laughs> focusing too much on community and doing particular forms of work for anthropology. Um, and I think it's important for us, if we're thinking about structure and institutions and various forms of oppressions, to think about the ways that how we're disciplined and how we're trained are connected to these longer histories of anti-Blackness um, and, and white supremacy. Um And that's a hard conversation to have in higher ed. And I see some people trying to have it in this moment because we're talking about, you know, the movement for Black Lives and what's happening and different forms of violence um, that are happening. But we're struggling in having these conversations in higher ed.
2: And now pivoting towards the future, um, because both of you, and and including uh, Professor Squire too, are people who or with this volume and then the other work that you're doing, uh, you're, you're moving us in, in higher ed uh, towards a future. But I'm interested to know, um, especially based upon this bit from uh, page eight, where you say in the wake of giving up the violence, exploitation and exclusion that currently function as the motors of the academy, a rebirth is necessary. End quote. In your mind, what does and also in your vision of of a future for this rebirth, what does that rebirth look like? And Dr. Williams, we're gonna let you, you. Hey, look, you you seen how this been rolling? If you if you if you if you answer the last one last, we're gonna give you first. Dr. Two you know, first
3: on this one. Um, and I'm probably gonna jack his answer because we've talked about this numerous times. <laughs> but um, we we have talked about and I, he might. I know he's been thinking about it for his writing so he might talk about I don't know institutional death maybe but um, and I think we have some some disagreements maybe on on the on the approaches <laughs> to what the future of the university looks like I think I'm known for or it is assumed that I'm ready to burn stuff down um, all the time and I do believe I mean I do believe a lot of this just needs to burn down like a lot of it needs to go a lot of it is rotten and there is no saving or reforming or transforming some of the things, some of the motors um, that are currently um, profitable for higher ed and that is allowing this thing to work. Um, and the way it is, it just needs to go. Um, I think maybe in the past couple of years, as I become more senior in higher ed, I see how difficult it is to create something anew if you burn everything down, right? Oh, and so and I just want to shout out um, Ryan Jobson, who's an anthropologist who just wrote who wrote a few years ago this great piece on um, on watching anthropology burn that has generated a discipline discipline wide conversation in anthropology about what do we do as anthropologists if we burn down a discipline right um, so I think we need to have a really honest conversation. Probably amongst different communities, like maybe not, maybe not together with everyone, but in different communities about what serves us, why are we here, like what is our purpose, and what does the future need to look like for us to be able to live um, sustainably and well and within these conditions, and how do we change these conditions? I think abolition is part of that conversation. If I'm looking at not only the, the conversations people are having, but the actual like praxis that people are doing. Abolition is one tool um, to think about the future of higher ed and what does abolitionist pedagogies, abolitionist higher ed look like. Um, I think the university needs to die unto itself. And this is what maybe Frank will talk about. I think we need to kind of Scratch and start all over, understanding that we can't just burn it all down in one day and then start anew. Like it's going to take time and and process. But I think we need to begin to have really creative conversations and imaginings about what that would look like and in this moment we are so stuck particularly during the pandemic, what was amazing to me during COVID and what is frustrating and makes me super angry were the ways that we didn't use this moment as an opportunity to reimagine how how ed can look and instead people got really stuck on trying to get back to whatever the, the norm in quotes was before, which was racist, which was sexist which was homophobic, which was ableist, right? And so Getting back to the norm made us find new and really creative ways to do stuff the old way instead of completely reimagining how we do education and how we do learning um, and how we can do these things collectively in ways that push back against old forms of oppression.
0: I think the pandemic is such a great example and and seeing how uh, when pushed to imagine new ways of existing. Uh, Some institutions were able to respond and what pulls them back to the old ways is profit and the ability to recoup or maintain uh, the profit uh, gains uh, or address the profits lost uh, over the past couple of years. So um, so Dr. Williams is right. I I struggle with this as well. Um, I do think institutions need to. To um, go through a death process in order to have a rebirth, but I'm often um, concerned about the collateral damage that that happens. That uh, we are in these universities, and and as we um, seek to burn them down and rebuild them, they um, often result in casualties of the very folks we're trying. Uh, to support. So uh, I, so my compromise, which probably makes me still complicit, is is trying to figure out how to rebuild a plane while we're flying it uh, and and rebuild it in a way that really gets at the roots of of white supremacy and anti-blackness and and, and, and allows us to remove those roots um, and then burn the ground so that those roots can't come back up. And, and that's, that's in my head, that makes sense. I wish I could tell you I've seen that put into practice in, in real tangible ways. Uh, but it also, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share my, my own present day frustration, uh, on the ways in which, uh, Institutional leadership is so critical to our abilities to be able to do that. And with the single shift of of, of somebody uh, in a leadership role, your efforts to do that can be compromised. And so uh, I, I'm less optimistic today about our ability to be able to do that in real uh, sustainable ways, especially under, under the context of needing to generate profit. I just
3: want to add one thing. I think... Um one of my, I guess it's a regret. One, I guess I'll call it One of my regrets is that there isn't a stronger feminist slash black feminist analysis in the text. And there's a variety of production reasons why that is. Um, but I do feel like in my organizing, the gift that things that black feminisms have given me, that a concept like transformative justice has given me and that I wish we would find productive and generative ways to use in higher ed instead of just like using that term and then doing whack stuff with it in higher ed, but really thinking about the type of vulnerability, the type of time and investment that transformative justice and and maybe even restorative justice require, the type of listening, um, reimagining, revision, like those things are kind of trained out of us as researchers, as scholars. Those things are not necessarily valued in the industry of higher ed. And the gift organizing spaces oftentimes have their own toxic things, their own issues that come up when you're trying to organize with folks that are oftentimes strangers. But one of the gifts is that sitting with people and figuring out how to experiment and try new ways of doing things, even though you know you may fail, is something that I wish we had more resources, A, and B, space to do in higher ed. And that would lead us to different futures. Um, but we're not given those spaces and we're definitely not given those resources to think about change, radical change in sustainable ways. And I mean, again, the book is about why, right? Like if they gave us that, it would look different. Um, But I wish we did have that time and resources.
2: Amen to that. Definitely. And, you know, that's why um, I'm, I'm also interested too um, about, because I've asked this before for people and I mm, maybe get to this a little later, but um, I'm always interested with edited volumes about possibilities for teaching um, and and inclusion in classrooms because, you know, y'all are in higher ed, you know, classroom spaces. Um, And so I'm also, um, I would love to know, um, and and maybe this might be a, a way to think about the next iteration of this or, you know, maybe teaching tools about how Classroom uh, folks can actually use this in their class, um, even because I, the part that I like is, you know, you have different parts and you have different contributions. I would honestly love and maybe this is me saying that I'll, I'll do it when I uh, start teaching um, at the university level to actually use this as its own textbook, um, because Lord knows we know how expensive textbooks can be um, or just books when you have 10 that you might need in a whole semester um I'll, I'll just say this I, I would love to teach this uh, a book in part because i can only imagine the conversations that it could start uh, for for students because I don't ever remember reading any essays like I read here when I was an undergrad at famU um there could be reasons for that you know there could be reasons but um but yeah that's that's just a, a plug for for the great work that y'all did in, in this volume so
3: thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I will say, I mean, so the, I love all the chapters. <laughs> One of the ones that I find super helpful um, is Jesse Carr and their co-author chapter on anti-diversity as intervention, um, because I think it's an example. There are other chapters like this, but there's, it's an example of how if you teach this book to students who are going through the disciplinary process and the training process, whether it's undergrad or grad school and higher ed right now, you can use this book and use the chapters to really give them even more tools. They already have tools, but give them more tools for understanding what's happening to them, right? And I think that chapter takes all of the kind of diversity initiatives and diversity rhetoric and all the things that universities you know, say they aspire to be or to do and really turns it on its head and thinks about the kind of ways that diversity perpetuates um, white privilege, white supremacy, um, the ways that diversity acts, that that the way that universities have taken up diversity has inhibited a lot of the work that they say they want to do. And so, yeah, I mean, I think teaching this book in the classroom is great, not only to allow people to have, you know, um, tools that are, that are, embedded in Black studies and other disciplines, but to really be able to understand what's happening to them in that moment um, and what they can do about what's happening to them in that moment.
2: And also, too, uh, a friend of mine, Amanda Joyce Hall, who uh, just, uh, she just got her PhD from Yale and is also a host here on New Books in African American Studies. She interviewed uh, Devarian Baldwin um, about his new book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, which I'm listening to on audiobook. And so... I Like if I would think about two books that have uh, been released in these last couple of years that are, you know, I, I think the term is a uh, critical university studies, I think is a is term. Um, I would I would really love to see. Um, first of all, I would actually love to see a conversation between the three of uh, the, the four of y'all. Actually, I think that would be quite. Hmm. New books in African-American studies, maybe. Who knows? Uh yeah, But I know yeah, y'all busy. What's funny know, so is maybe, um, and the... I had talked
3: about this a year and a half ago, that there needed to be a conversation. So, Adam, you make that happen. Come on. <laughs>
2: hey,
3: okay, okay. You know,
2: got something to work on for the fall. So, this, this is this – is, honestly, look – Hey, it's on, it's it, this is being recorded, so people gonna people gonna be clamoring. So you know, we are gonna make this happen. So, uh, so we got about twenty minutes left in our in our convo. So, um, throughout you have referenced different um essays, uh, different chapters in the book. Um, and, and I've also spoken a bit about uh the particular one that I'm interested in personally. Uh, but for for each of you, what new information? Insights did you take away from this entire uh, bookmaking process? And Dr. Tua, we'll, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, so a, a couple of things come to mind.
0: Um, you know, I, I was already suspicious of DEI efforts, and and I think um, the book, at least the ways in which predominantly white institutions operationalize their DEI efforts, and And the book really made concrete for me the ways in which existing DEI efforts contribute to anti-Blackness specifically. And and so that facilitated a a fundamental shift in the ways in which I I thought about my own work as a DEI officer uh, and the types of ways in which I needed to be intentional about centering Blackness in my DEI efforts and uh, I write, I wrote about this recently when I, I took a look back on the ways in which my, my scholarship had, you know, referenced DEI in a, a more uh, co-opted term of inclusive excellence and the ratio of Blackness in the opera, opera, operationalization of those concepts uh, have really resulted in the dismantling of, of support. In predominantly white institutions that were available to, to support Black communities, and so, um, so that was one. Uh, the second uh, sort of takeaway for me coming out of this, and and we don't, I mean, we have probably one chapter in the book that attempts to connect this in a much more global context, but I've been thinking about uh, you know the the plantation politics framework. Uh, from a much more global context uh, based on some work I've been doing in the Netherlands and Europe. And um, while their, their relationships are, are, are slightly different, uh, there are some similarities. And, and, and in particular, uh, you know, we talked about language here, uh, which uh, the sort of U.S. context gives us a way to name race and racism, uh, through our our, our our historical context, and in certain parts of the world, um, the language to do that doesn't exist, or at least there's been a resistance to um, to to allowing that language. So I'll just pick on the Netherlands, for example. Being able to to uh, study races is hard when one uh, it, it's not allowed, uh, or or two when. Uh, the translation from Dutch doesn't, uh, account for a word, uh, that's the equivalent of racism. Uh, so it, it's been really fascinating to think about, the, uh, how do these concepts that we're uh, positioning in, in the book apply outside of the sort of U S, uh, historical context. Um, I
3: think, so for me, uh, as I was, as we were working on this book, um, I've already talked about some of this, but I think for me, what happened was definitely learning the different ways that disciplines and different scholars and researchers talk about um, white supremacy, anti-blackness. But there was like a, the personal transformation that happened was that I got very clear about the type of work I wanted to do both professionally and maybe even, I don't personally, but like as an organizer or activist or, you know, practitioner, like that, that became clear to me as we went through the process of the book, because again, the hope was that the book would allow us to identify um, different places for transformation and for change. And so um, while I learned a lot Intellectually and research wise and like professional well, professionally, um, it was the personal kind of being becoming clear about what my role in higher ed was and what possibilities were possible here and which ones weren't. Um, I think I became clear about what was not possible in higher ed and what where I needed to put like my love and labor and energy in other places and. Um, I think there was a part, even though I I actively... Understood that higher ed could never be my home. There were ways that I was still operating that way, and I think, you know, when we when we talk about like first generation students of color, some of us have that response to the space for a variety of reasons. And even though intellectually I knew it, this book helped me become very clear about how institutions were viewing me and that it couldn't be a home. Um, so I think you know, Trustee. Trusty, uh McMillan Cotton has the institutions will not love you uh, sticker. I think it became clearer to me and I couldn't ignore it in the way I could before after this book. Um, and that's not a bad thing. That's actually quite freeing and liberating to be able to be clear about what I'm willing to give and what I'm not willing to give anymore um, and to fight what is extracted from me and exploited from me um, to be aware of that. And I think Deanne also had a similar kind of uh, process that he went through and so as
2: we move um, towards a final few questions here um, going back to language because um, you know as as someone who writes about the enslaved I'm very interested uh, to know because I, I remember uh, so I, I worked with dr. Foreman at the University of Delaware for a year um, so I got to know um the, the document that you used, uh, writing about slavery slash teaching about slavery, this might help. Uh, and so I noticed that you cited this um, in your uh, opening um, introduction. And so I'm interested to know uh, about, you know, tough language choices and ultimately how this particular, uh, I believe it's a Google Doc, um, how did it help you with writing that introduction um, also as a group, too, with different disciplinary um, areas of expertise. So. Um,
3: I really appreciated the time and effort that Dr. Foreman took Um, And I know some of the other historians that she worked with to create this document, I really appreciated it as we were writing the introduction and it helped in the review process with other authors and us having, again, these cross-disciplinary conversations about how do you talk about Black people who were in slavery, right? Why enslaved is important and not slaves, right? Like these distinctions between um, how are we going to talk about the processes and institutions that were acting on people, and that people were navigating not as identities that they were born with, that like identities that were forced upon them, um, and and what happens when uh, folks are talked about as slaves, and when they are when you point to enslaved as a process and a history that has happened to people. So I was really grateful for the document because it made us pause and slow down and be clear about what we were identifying in the book. Um, And it helped that it came from like experts, right, like people who have researched this and spent a lot of time thinking about um, how to talk about anti-blackness, how to talk about white supremacy as processes that are oppressive and that are about power and resources and still have Black people keep their humanity in those conversations? Like, how do we not perpetuate the exploitation and extraction through even the language that we're using in the text? Um, The other reason why I really appreciated that document and why we cited it in the introduction is because I knew it was a Google Doc. And there's something about the there's an assumption that anything that is outside of the peer peer review process is not useful. And what I have seen around this particular Google Doc that can still be cited is that, and that was created by Black women, (laughs) um, is that something... I'm going to use the word simple, like as simple as a Google doc can be influential in changing the language and frameworks of entire disciplines, right? Like you can use this doc, this Google doc to change the conversation that we're having about power and about oppression. Um, And so while I know it wasn't simple for them to, for uh, Dr. Foreman and the folks who worked on this to create this, I think something about citing a Google doc is really important because it makes the work accessible um it makes it uh un- makes us understand that everything that is is important intellectually is not peer-reviewed in a journal right or in a book um the last thing I'll say is you mentioned folks earlier um and I have I don't know I have a response to it every time I see it in the intro now because you know at the time I mean we worked on this book for I don't know four four years, maybe (laughs) four years Um, at the time that we started to write it. And once it went to press, like went into the production process, F.O.L.X. was a way that people could point to um, gender expansive and and gender inclusive ways of talking about black experiences um, that that centered and and tried its best not to marginalize folks of a variety of genders and sexualities. And in the past two years, you know, people have pushed back against that spelling. So now there is F-O-L-K-S, which is what I use now. And so that snapshot of seeing something that now people, particularly like my my trans and gender not conforming folks generally like push back against right f-o-l-l-x in some ways it's tough for me to see it <laughs> in print um in this moment but i understood the intention of what we were trying to do in that moment and i hope that again in the name of revision right in the name of reimagining in the name of trying to do something different um people will have some grace around that so
2: and and that's important about uh, revision too i know um What's his name? Um, uh, Kiese Lehman writes uh, a lot, actually, on on revision, not only in terms of writing, but also in terms of life. And as writers, this is a part of our life. And so, um, you know, it's not the whole thing, but it is part. Um, And so I actually think that that's uh, learning this story. And thank you for for adding on that um, important tidbit, uh, Dr. Williams, because I think that uh, for those who will read it, y'all y'all got to the end of the interview y'all y'all gonna read it now you can't listen for an hour plus and not go get that book uh so you know um i had a couple other questions but i'm i'm very interested to know this as, as well uh especially just because um you know i'm i'm someone who folks who know who, who know me very well it's hard for me to work in silence oftentimes i gotta have some music i gotta have something playing. Like yeah, I don't know. I'm just maybe that just means I'm easily distracted. Hey, I'll take that. Um and also, you know, hey, Beyonce and Drake have new albums. One is actually out, the other one is uh forthcoming. So in the spirit of that, um I I wondered um if you could curate a playlist based upon this book, Plantation Politics and Campus Rebellions, what ten songs are the amount of songs that you can come up with now? Uh, would go in said playlist.
3: Go ahead, expert. I won't help.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: So I I, I saw this question and and I I was like, hmm, The, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is not so much the actual songs, but the environment that would allow me to integrate my writing and as someone who's a retired DJ, uh, my the, the space that I create to, to perform that part, creative part of my mind. So I'm sitting in my home office. If you were to go into my basement, you see my my setup where I have my, my DJ equipment. And And in my ideal world, I would have one space where both occurred. And... I would organically, depending on my mood, pull songs to create a playlist. So, um, lately, in fact, last night, as I was doing some work, I was listening to a range of songs that I don't typically listen to, that the younger folks listen to, that some would describe as a little bit more ratchet. But, um, and, and, and to my surprise <laughs> i i was um i was pleasantly surprised by some of what i was listening to uh and i won't go into to, to actual names of songs but my ideal playlist would integrate afro beats, hip-hop um definitely reggae uh i'm an old school person by heart um uh, so uh, it would it would integrate, uh, from those various genres.
2: Okay. Go ahead. See, I didn't know that. Uh, okay. Retired. I didn't DJ. know he was going out okay. himself. So I, that's
3: why I was like the expert. <laughs>
2: Uh huh. Okay. Okay. All right. We might need to. We might need you to make a uh make a little mix for the people. You know what I'm saying? You know I'm. Just, look. I know. I know. I know. We talked about profit before. You know. Bad. 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 But you know, get it in the hands of the people. You know what I'm saying? So well, that's the way That's the way you can start a class. Each well, class. If you send me, me,
0: if you send me some songs that come to mind as you're reading it. I'll be happy to put that in the mix
2: for you. Done. 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 Yeah. New said of America, such listens. Y'all hear that? Y'all hear that?
3: That's Before great. I love that. I look forward to that playlist. Um, I appreciate this question because I actually I had, hadn't thought about music the whole time that we were writing this, um, so I appreciate that question, and it, I, it, it took me a while to figure out what I would put down. Um, both of us are Caribbean, so I... Um, I always try to make sure I don't forget <laughs> to, cause there's a part of me that somehow dance hall and reggae and like, it, it becomes pushed, it, it becomes the part that I keep away from higher ed. I don't know why that is. Like, it's a part that it's really uh, deeply important to me and I, I, I protect it, um, <laughs> from higher ed. Um, but for me, like Sizzla, anything from Sizzla is, will get me in the space of thinking about rebellion and resistance, um. And the way he articulates, like, pushing back against systems, I really appreciate. Um, I know when we were discouraged and felt like we had no idea what we were doing or what was going to happen, in my chapter, BLM, Kendrick Lamar's We Gonna Be All Right was always our motivating um, recovery song. Like, it just made us feel like things were possible. And so I really <laughs> I have a particular relationship and connection with that song. Yeah. Um, When I think about more of what I wish was in the book, talking about gendered labor and the particular roles that Black women play within plantation politics and within campus rebellions, um, Tasha's Lullaby, I don't know if y'all have ever heard that song, but it's a great song. It's written as a lullaby. It's written to little Black girls um, and just a reminder of not allowing institutions to extract your labor regularly, that it's okay to rest um, and it's okay to kind of um, keep for ourselves, our wonder. So that's a great song. Um, and the last one, when I'm trying to be hopeful <laughs> about what's happening to us and what we can do in this space, um, thinking about Miriam Kaba's mantra that hope is a discipline, um, is Donnie Hathaway. Someday We'll All Be Free. That's usually when I'm at Lois, that song does it for me.
2: Well, y'all, thank you so much, Dr. Frank Tewitt and Dr. Bianca Williams, so much for being with me today. And these are two of the co-editors, and uh, Dr. Dan Squire is uh, not here, but is definitely here in spirit. And uh, if you've gotten this far and don't know what book that we've been talking about, we've been talking about Plantation Politics and Cambridge Rebellions, Power, Diversity, and the Emancipatory Struggle. In higher education. And if y'all enjoy this podcast and all the ones for New Books in African American Studies, rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please go support our authors here at SUNY Press. Shout out to Rebecca over there as well, doing amazing work. Um, uh, Rebecca Colesworthy, I believe. Um, and so thank you so much for, for sending this amazing book. And uh, once again, y'all, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I am your host in New Books in African American Studies. Adam McNeil until next time y'all over and out.